Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia on Air, the podcast from the Royal College of Anesthetists. My name is Jan, I'm an ST6 currently at Great Ormond Street Hospital. I'm one of the two UK anaesthetic representatives for Gastoc, Global Anesthesia Surgery Obstetric Collaboration. Hi, I'm Fee. I'm an SD5 in Southampton. I'm the other UK anaesthetic rep of GASOC. In this series, we're going to dive into the global partnerships work in the college. These are opportunities for anaesthetists of all grades to engage with the college's international work. In this episode, we have the privilege to talk to Dr. Michelle White, who is a long-term volunteer for Multi-Ships and has worked in capacity building. Welcome, Dr. White. How about you also tell us about yourself? Hello, and thank you for having me on, on the podcast today. So I'm a consultant anaesthetist working at Great Ormond Street Hospital, but I haven't worked here uh, for all of my consultant career. I started off as a consultant in anaesthesia and intensive care in Bristol. And I was there for about four years. And I, while I was there, I was involved um, both as a registrar and then as a consultant volunteering for a couple of weeks at a time per year with an organization called Mercy Ships. And after being in Bristol for almost five years, I decided that it was time to quit that job in the NHS and go and work full time overseas with Mercy Ships. So I did that for about five years. And then I came back to GOSH about six years ago. That's great. So I think we actually met working with Mercy Ships back in 2012 on the Africa Mercy in Togo. And I know you were involved in starting up their capacity building work. What does that actually mean? Um, and how did it all come about? Yeah, I remember you quite well, Fee. It was, uh, it was a great time and it was just at the beginning of my full-time volunteering stint there. So I think capacity building is one of those words that you hear and another term that you hear along the same sort of lines is the, is the term health system strengthening. And really both of those refer to the desire to come alongside people and increase their ability to deliver uh, their surgical services or really everything to do with surgery. And you can think of surgery as a little ecosystem in itself. So capacity building is really just trying to increase their ability to deliver surgical care. So how did the whole uh, capacity building work with uh, Mercy Ships started then? Yeah, so really it started because Mercy Ships were going towards the Republic of Congo and that's the Congo Brazzaville, not the, the DRC, so it's the, the smaller one of the two countries there. And they had said that Mercy Ships were very welcome to come and do free surgery, but what they were much more interested in was training and education. And it wasn't uh, something that Mercy Ships had done a lot of. And so we were then in a bit of a pickle. We were thinking, well, how do we deliver uh, training to uh, a country when we've never really done that before? And so I was asked to, I was running anaesthesia at the time, but I was asked to try and devote 50% of my time to designing a capacity building program that would meet the uh, government's expectations and desires so really I had to there weren't many people doing that sort of thing then that's over a decade ago now and so I had a few friends that were working overseas I had a few other friends that had dabbled in a number of different sort of training courses for anesthesia and trauma and really I, I asked a lot of questions um, spent a lot of time talking to people and we came up with, with a plan really to try and deliver education and training in two broad categories. One was uh, using courses, and you can use a, a course whereby you, know, you have a set curriculum which actually allows you to deliver content to a larger number of people, and then to have mentoring where 
you can really invest deeply in individual on a one-on-one basis and there the the content of what someone might learn or the curriculum is dictated by the individual and their needs and the level they're at uh, but obviously it, it only gets one person at a time rather than a, a, a much larger group so we put together a, a program like that that involves as I said, a number of different courses such as uh, safe obstetric anesthesia course uh, there's one called primary trauma care that's been well established in numerous countries over many many years uh, with very successful results um, we partnered with lifebox around pulse oximeter distribution and uh, we also developed a, a leadership course which had been going for non-medical people and tried to adapt that to, to the medical environment that sounds like a really good curriculum and sets of different courses how did that continue to roll on to other countries then well, it involved a bit of a culture shift, as I said, for Mercy Ships, sort of pivoting the organisation from really being just a surgical delivery platform to one that did um, capacity building and focused quite heavily on education and training. So there was a little bit of um, organisational cultural change that we needed to overcome there to show that uh, if we put resources um, time and people and money into training then it wasn't going to detract from a surgical program so we need to keep delivering on our surgical numbers but then also to uptick the number of people that were getting trained and so there was definitely uh, you know buy-in and a will to do that because people could see that was the way forward it was all about sustainability and leaving a legacy and leaving things behind when the, the ship moved on from one country to the next and so there was a there was a, a will to continue the program in in the following country that we visited the year after uh, uh, Congo, and so we ended up in Madagascar. And when we were in Madagascar, the we ended up spending two years there um, uh, back to back. Mercy ships normally spends about a year in a country before moving on to another one, but in Madagascar we were fortunate enough to spend uh, two years in the same place, and that had the benefit of really knowing the country very well. So when we were discussing with the government and doing needs assessments about what we might be able to deliver in terms of training, we were already there. So that we didn't need to spend that time, and what we could do then was really invest on the programs that we'd done in in the first year, roll them over in a much bigger way into the second so it allowed us then in the second year in Madagascar to really grow the capacity building exponentially such that um, it could that the numbers of people trained would equal the the number of people receiving free surgeries Um, and in that course of that sort of exponential growth we developed a number of uh, bespoke programs one of which was implementing the uh, nationwide surgical safety uh, checklist of the World Health Organization so implementing that at a national level and also I was involved um, as a paediatric anaesthetist um, it's a you know desire of mine to see that every child everywhere you know has access to paediatric surgical anaesthesia care and many of them don't and so I was fortunate enough to be involved with a, a colleague of mine in developing a safe paediatric anaesthesia course while we were um, in both in Congo actually and, and in Madagascar. I know you mentioned about the Safe Peds course, uh, you're one of the original content creators. How did that all get started? Yeah, that was an incredible journey, really. I, I had the, the privilege of, of knowing a very well-respected paediatric anaesthetist who worked here at Great Ormond Street and has recently retired. And she'd been very involved with the Safe courses from the beginning, Safe Obstetric Anesthesia. And she had a heart and a passion to develop a similar type of course for children. And she asked me to help her 
basically create the course. And that was a, a huge inspiration to me because she was being a, a great mentor to me and very valuable to the whole world of paediatric anaesthesia. And she had a huge experience of working alongside people in Uganda. And obviously I had experience working in some of the Francophone African countries. And so together we, we formed a team and recruited other paediatric anaesthetists really from, from around the world, some from uh, Africa, places like Uganda, others from the United States. And I think we had people from uh, the Southern Hemisphere as well. And that enabled us to put together this Safe Paediatric Anesthesia course, which has been really running ever since. And one of the great things about it was that I'd been learning um, while I was working in Congo Brazzaville, which is a French-speaking country, that it was you know, very important to develop these training materials, not just in English, but also in, in French, particularly for Africa, but also, you know, other languages to make them truly global. And that was uh, interesting for me. And I was very keen when we developed Safe Peds that we wrote a French manual sort of pretty much alongside it. We couldn't pilot it in French straight away. That's quite difficult when you're doing anything new. It's much easier to do it in your own mother tongue. But um, we managed to have a French translation pretty much simultaneously and it was that was certainly a challenge for me with the French. I think one of the things I realised with the training I was doing in, in, in these French-speaking countries was that while you can share content and educational material using interpreters and through translation of materials, it's much harder to build relationship through an interpreter and really a lot of teaching and education, it is based off relationship. You know, for many of us, we, we change our behaviours and we do things in a different way in our hospitals for patient safety because we, we believe and trust in the people that told us to do it. And that's really all about relationships. So for me, I, I ended up spending quite a bit of time then trying to actually improve my own French and time at language school to really commit to trying to be a better educator myself as we ran these courses. That's really good effort. Um, with all these going on, how do you realise and how do you know these projects are sustainable? Yeah, I think sustainability is one of those things that really interests me. We talk a lot about it um, both in the NHS and particularly in the international development world, be that health or any of the other sectors. And what we mean by sustainability is, is difficult to define. And you often find in this sort of context people talk about sustainability meaning is it lasting sort of five years after you left and yet I think when we apply that to ourselves and our own learning and education um, certainly in the NHS in England then we often don't expect many things to last beyond say a year or two um, an example of that would be every year I have to do basic life support training it's a sort of core clinical skill as an anaesthetist yet I'm required to attend training every year and I can only think presumably the reason I have to attend training is they don't expect me to remember it after a year so in other words that is only sustainable for one year and we think that's completely acceptable and it's the same for non-clinical skills such as fire safety you know again I have to attend that course very regularly every year or two and presumably again because they expect me not to not to remember it so we're saying that these things are only a realistic expectation that they'll only be sustainable for about a year so I think when we talk about sustainability for some of the training and the projects uh, that we're involved with, with Mercy Ships or other people are doing in this capacity building and health system strengthening arena, we probably need to measure sustainability with the same stick, as it were, 
that we measure ourselves with. So to my mind, I think it's only reasonable and fair that we expect these projects to last, you know, a, a year or two. And so what, what we did really was we, after this program that we developed back in Congo Brazzaville, I was desperately keen to go back there the following year and see what, what had happened so that we could we could learn from our experiences, the things that had worked, the things that didn't work, and really not view them as failures, but le view them as opportunities for learning. So we went back to Congo, and I, I was amazed, actually, at the number of things that were continuing. Um, some things weren't, and then it was interesting to look into that and see why weren't they working. And there was one example, we'd had a, a nurse that had come to spend time with us in the operating room, and he was very impressed by a number of protocols and cleaning regimes and the way we looked after instruments and things. And he went away and developed a number of protocols back at his hospital and was keen to implement them. But the reason they hadn't been implemented when we went back a year later was because he'd given them to the hospital director and they were still sat on the hospital director's desk. And without the stamp of approval from the hospital director, he couldn't move these things forward. And while when we were there, we'd engaged with the hospital director and he was fully aware of the nurse that was spending time with us, we hadn't really spent much more time investing in the hospital director himself. And really all it took when we returned a year later was to sit down with the hospital director and explain why these things were important and he stamped them there and then. And so that really led to a change in our programs going forward where we started to involve the hospital directors a lot more in the programs and the teaching as much as they wanted so that these little blockages like that wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't occur. So I think following up is very important. And um, we followed up a number of things, particularly the, the nationwide implementations of the surgical safety checklist. We did a pilot of that in Congo and found I was very surprised, actually. Um, I think I had quite low expectations. I was very surprised when I went back to Congo that people were still using the checklist. So then after a couple more pilots in Madagascar and we did a nationwide implementation, um, I was, again, very surprised that we went back 12 to 18 months later to evaluate you know, most of the hospitals throughout Madagascar that we taught it in and to find that people were still using it. Um, and in particular, that people were, were enjoying using it, actually, because for when people are used to silo working, they're actually very grateful to have the t chance to have a bit of a team chat and to share um, their, their crunch points of uh, what are key aspects of the surgery. So it's interesting how we were able to do that. That was wonderful, Michelle. Um, tell me a bit more about um, how you uh, actually evaluated them and see how things have changed uh, when you go back. So one, one of the ways we were evaluating things, particularly the implementation of the surgical safety checklist, was to go back and, and see it in use. So we would try and go back for a day and watch a surgery uh, that was happening in the hospital and see how well people were using it. And there are a number of validated tools out there that we could, that we, that we could use and cho we chose a few of those. And uh, if, if there was a surgery there, we would watch it and we would evaluate the various things like the actual process, the team dynamics uh, against a, a matrix. And if there wasn't a surgery happening, then what we would do is we'd ask the, them to do a surgical simulation of a surgery. So we would simulate it in, as if it was real life. And while that's clearly not as good as actually watching a surgery in real time, you soon get a feel if people haven't used a tool for a year and they're uh, forgotten how to use it then it's not going to look very slick and the team working and dynamics aren't going to be quite there so we use some simulation as a surrogate 
and then we had a, a number of uh, surveys and focus groups that we were tools that we also used for people to say how they were finding it and also to help them problem solve actually and I think evaluation has two purposes one is for us to learn um, and make improvements because a lot of education education research like this is an iterative process it's not you know it's not always perfectly designed at the beginning but you learn and you adapt as you go and I think that's a very important aspect of implementation one of the great things about teaching in one country and then moving on to another is that in an ideal world it wouldn't be me coming from England to teach someone in Africa how to do something, but actually it would be people from the, their own country and their own region uh, teaching them how to do it. So what we would do is if we were running something like a primary trauma care course or a safe uh, obstetric or pediatric anesthesia course, we'd use a train-the-trainer model whereby we would then train up people to deliver those courses in their own country, but not only in their own country, we would invite them to come and teach on another course in another country, which was then very helpful because it was much more helpful for someone from Benin, for example, to hear how someone in, in Togo or someone in Madagascar was going about problem solving and uh, how they were putting training into practice rather than hearing it from me coming from England. They had similar challenges, they had similar language and it it produced a very, very rich, I think, training environment. And it was a great experience for the people that were the trainers as well as the people that were receiving the training. And it allowed sort of cross-fertilisation across countries and regions. These all sound like a wonderful partnerships that you've been involved with over the years. Um, thank you so much for talking to us. For those who are interested, there are opportunities advertised regularly on Mercyship's website on um, and www w.mercyships.org.uk I'm sure there will be many more opportunities being advertised in the future especially when there are two ships working in the next few years also feel free to contact the global partnerships team on their email at global at rcoa.ac.uk and finally um, if you'd like to join us at GASOC go to www.gasocuk.co.uk or follow us on x formerly twitter on GASOC underscore 2015 Thank you so much again, Michelle, for, um, for, for chatting with us. It's been a really inspiring time to talk to you and actually all of our guests over the series. If you've missed out on any of the last episodes, you can listen back on your podcast app. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We've loved hosting these and chatting to some really inspirational people along the way.